All right, I'm on here for Meet the Operators with Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, author, environmentalist, and, and some say, and I believe them, the foremost uh, climate activist of our generation. Bill, thanks for joining. What a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Well, so we usually start with something called icebreakers, but when I'm now that I'm thinking about it, that may be too literal with you because I have this image of like a giant piece of ice like calving off the the Ross shelf or something. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> all right, well, let's dig in. A lot of the audience here is people that are looking to scale and grow their companies, and 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 do that through maybe non-traditional means as opposed to you know paid advertising uh, and influencer marketing uh, or you know kind of grassroots and community has been a huge component of what a lot of, uh, of the fastest growing uh, companies have done. 350, uh, why don't you want to start, maybe just tell people about kind of how you started that and what the original uh, mission and kind of vision has been? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I wrote the first book about climate change 25 years ago. And for a long time, I thought that writing books about stuff was my role in this and giving talks. I kept writing books and they did well. You know, I've been published in 25 languages and they're on bestseller lists and things. But at a certain point, it became clear to me that we were, had long since won the argument. We were just losing the fight. And that was because the fight was not really about data and research and whatever. The fight was about, as fights usually are, about power. And so to win the fight, to slow down climate change, we were going to have to acquire some power. Now, the other side, the fossil fuel industry, is the richest industry on Earth. They dwarf even the tech industry in terms of the amount of uh, money that runs through their work in. And the only creativity, sometimes you need to spend your body, go to jail. So we took our, uh, about seven or eight years ago, just as we were forming this, that 350 parts per million CO2 was the most carbon we could safely have in the atmosphere. A number, sadly, we're already well past. We went past 400 There's parts. So, so that was, you know, one originally myself and six undergraduates at Middlebury College here, kind of first coming out moment for what's now become a large global grassroots climate movement with lots of different uh, groups and organizations and all led by the same people who were leading that day, the people on the front lines of climate change, uh, the people in the most vulnerable places on earth. And it was the work of, you know, me and my colleagues to try to sort of figure out how to facilitate that. Uh, we thought of it, since obviously we didn't go and sort of organize 5,200 demonstrations, we thought of it almost as like having the potluck supper. We'd, we'd set the date and the theme and then people would bring their best to the fore. And we learned, I think, a lot of lessons about scaling um, along the way. We've gone on to hold, we think, about 20,000 demonstrations in every country on Earth except North Korea. And we've gone on to do a lot of other work, too, to build this huge divestment movement that's uh, passing now the $2 trillion mark in, in terms of the assets divested from fossil fuel, and to help build the aggressive opposition to new fossil fuel projects, things like the Keystone Pipeline, right? Sending people to jail and all the other ways that movements work. So we've learned a lot, I think, about things that, that work in our age, which are probably different than how movements have organized in the past. Yeah. So let's let's deconstruct that a little bit because that because that's absolutely incredible. You went from zero to 
5,200 simultaneous. What, when you sat down to kind of put that plan into action, what, what were the, maybe the strategies and tactics that you, that you started with with the team? Well, the first thing we knew was that um, we couldn't worry about control. And we couldn't worry about, you know, controlling the brand or the logo or anything else. We took our logo and our message, 350 parts per million, 350.org, and we just tossed it out there. Anybody can make use of this. Anybody can play. Bring it your best. And that's a sort of, you know, I think that would have been even a, a little while ago a difficult task for organizations to, a difficult step for them to take, but we had no choice. We had no resources really, and we sensed that the moment was right. This was 2008, 2009, and we Quickly, tech people were describing it as the first open source organizing in the world. And I guess in a sense, that's true. Uh, we opened up the source code, as it were, right away and just said, make use of this however you want. And it, it was beautiful to watch how responsible people were with it all over the world. We've never had the slightest problem. Um, um, it's been amazing how careful people have been. How did and how did people you know find out about you guys you know and you're thinking about okay we're going to build this source code we're going to create basically a template right and and allow other people to you know to build off of that uh, you know were you were you were you thinking specifically about finding influencers or kind of key uh, folks in different countries and targeting them first and letting them spread the word? We made a um not exact sort of but not exactly. We made the early decision that we did, at first we didn't want celebrities involved because we thought that they made people wonder how real it was. So our celebrities were going to be scientists, and that's who we quickly got involved. We were also extremely lucky just in terms of timing. If you think about 2008, 2009, that kind of thing, we're really right in the early growth curve of things like Facebook. And since everybody who was working with me was 21 at the time, they were completely primed to go with that. Um, and it meant that they could, um, that within you know six or eight months, 350.org, say, had more friends on Facebook than all the other environmental groups in the U.S. combined. They used the, the new digital stuff very quickly to spread the word. However, from the beginning, we were extremely clear that our job was not to get people to sign email petitions, that if stuff stayed online, it wasn't going to matter. So what we used the web for was to set up things in the real world, all these real events, and then to take the images of those events and use them to make it more than the sum of its parts. So for instance, that first day of global action, our killer app was Flickr. We had everybody around the world within, as their demonstrations were underway, uploading images to Flickr. So if we had 5,200 demonstrations, there were moments that weekend when there were 30, 40, 50 images a minute pouring into our headquarters. We were able to take those in a variety of ways to get them back out around the world. I mean, some of them very directly. We rented the big billboards at the end of Times Square that are normally doing, you know, whiskey ads and stuff. And instead they were showing these pictures, bing, 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 bing. You know, it was quite amazing. The, the effect of all this activity 
uh, was, I think, to make what was then still a relatively small movement appear larger than it was yet, or you know, to make it seem big by geographic dispersal, not by sheer numbers. We could not at that point, if we'd told people to come march in New York City, gotten more than a few thousand people to go do that, and it would have looked small and puny. Uh, instead, we looked big because we were coming from every direction. And that was important in our analysis because we thought that the thing that made climate action difficult was not that people don't care, people do care and very deeply, but the fact that it seems so big, too big for any of us to make a difference as individuals. And actually, that's correct. As individuals, even if we change our light bulbs, we're really not doing all that much. Our, our only real hope is to become less individuals for a while, to join together in groups that can uh, force the kind of systemic change, economic, political change, that gives us a fighting chance here. So that was our job, and I think we did a pretty good job of using the technologies available to kind of make us look larger than we were. Now we are that large. You know, we had a march last September in New York City with 400,000 people, the biggest demonstration about anything in this country in quite a while. And it was very, very beautiful. How, how do you track um, success or measure success? Um, you know, because there's a, obviously the, the outcome that we're, that we're fighting for here is to, you know, to, to lower the carbon in the atmosphere. But as an, as an interim step, um, you know, as you're thinking about, you know, putting together, you know, number of demonstrations, uh, number of participants. What, what's kind of the, the key metric that you think well, about? The, um, yes, the, as you point out, by the crudest metrics, we're still losing badly. The amount of carbon in the air continues to go up. And may, for a few more years, there's enormous momentum in the system. Um, our job is to change the zeitgeist, okay? When movements win, they win by changing the zeitgeist. And it's very hard to sort of know, you know, to sort of measure when you've reached that, except that as you reach it, things suddenly get easy. Um, you know, suddenly the gay marriage idea is not a far-fetched idea like it was 10 years ago. Suddenly it's an obvious idea uh, because the organizing, and, and the minute that you reach that point, you suddenly have, politicians clamoring to get on board, you know. Four years ago, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were against gay marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. Now they're, you know, now they're, uh, you know, couldn't be more for it. And that's not because they changed their minds. It's because they understood that the zeitgeist had shifted and now it was to their advantage uh, uh, to be that way. So that's our job. So we, you know, day to day, we measure every kind of metric, you know, how many, uh, you know, how many coal mines we've stopped, how many, um, uh, uh, you know, people have sent letters to their emails to their senator, um, how many trillions of dollars we've managed to get divested from fossil fuel companies, so on and so forth. But, but our, our job is not to focus on uh, those things for very long. It's to keep moving ahead on every front we can think of with the basic goal of changing the zeitgeist. When that mm. happens, 
as the world's mood shifts about this, then it becomes easier to do all the obvious things. You know, every economist, left, right, and center, has said for 25 years, it makes no sense not to put a price on carbon, you know, uh, allowing those externalities, to, those, you know, that to be treated as an externality is just a guarantee that you, you won't get change in the speed you need. Um, that's true, but the fossil fuel industry is politically powerful enough to keep it from happening, so we keep fighting. So let, let's uh, let's change tack a little bit. Um, a lot of where you know great teams um, you know seem to seem to win from is from really building a strong culture. Uh, how, how do you think about when you're setting up an organization or or looking at one that you're partnering with? How, how do you define culture? Um, well, our culture is to be as open and porous as possible, um, and you know, movements, I mean, there was a period in the past when they tended to have kind of great leaders, Dr. King figures and things. There were always tons of people engaged in them, but, but our moment and our movement and stuff is not like that. Uh, uh, it's more like a kind of fossil fuel resistance. Uh, the fossil fuel industry itself is protean. It's sprawling. It's everywhere. And so instead of a sort of superhero, you know, at the, instead we have a sort of just swarm of people everywhere standing up to it in every possible way. So everything in our culture is to try and bring that forward and especially to bring forward the leadership of people uh, in those communities that don't get hurt from often enough. You know, the places that are really suffering the, the brunt of this stuff full on because they're able to tell the stories most powerfully. So as you as you think about um, you know obviously open openness and transparency um, when you're looking to bring people in to to help you run this what are the what are the traits that you found um, you know denote someone that's going to make a great uh, community organizer is the wrong word here but uh, well it's you know, sort of leader, leader for your... I mean I think organizers uh, I don't really I mean we're making this up as we go along and I don't know that much about it. <laughs> better, but, uh, you know, organizers are basically people who other people like to be around um, um, and can help, you know, uh, help them realize what it is they want to do. And so that's what we, uh, that's, I think that's, that's who's really succeeded in this work. I mean, it's also true that with the exception of me, <laughs> they tend to be young. Uh, I think because the pace of work and commitment is really high and harsh, you know. Um, it's the biggest fight in human history by far. And, you know, um, I mean, think of, think of, you know, think how hard people are willing to work just to get rich, you know. You know people in the tech community will work, you know, day sure. and night because someday they'll, someone will give them a pot of money. Think how much harder you'd be willing to work if, if instead of getting rich, what you were working for was actually um, something that mattered, you know? And so that's an interesting question about creating incentives. How, how do you think about creating incentives for people, um, you know, to grow within your organization and to, to feel like they're making a difference? Well, I'm probably the one. We have better people who sort of think better and more strongly about this than I do. <laughs> I tend to think more just about what the next fight and campaign is. But... I mean, I think we've tried to build a really, you know, 
a organization that treats people well. Um, not monetarily, no one's ever going to get rich or even comfortable doing this, but but in other ways, um, um, and offers them lots of chances to show their stuff and to you know work on things. But the the real answer is in this kind of work, the rewards that count are the intrinsic ones. Um, very few people in their lives get to be doing something important about the most important question that the world has ever faced. I mean, this is the most important battle that human beings have ever undertaken, and yet there's really a few thousand, not many more than that, people around the world sort of who get to engage in it full time, you know. Um, and 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 so it's a um, there's a great deal of <laughs> intrinsic reward. There's also a lot of burnout that we do all that we can to guard against and uh, help people with because you're dealing not only with hard work but with you know horribly difficult uh, emotional subject matter too. Um, you know, I mean, many of our colleagues are say live on low-lying Pacific Island nations where they can daily watch the seas rise. Um, think about what the um, what the emotional impact of that is like, you know. Um, so it's it's hard, but it's beautiful too. Yeah, I mean, the, it is a battle, right? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people forget. Is it is um, uh, it's not something that's gonna if we don't pay attention to it, it's gonna naturally solve itself. We've got to, as yeah. you know, firmly believe we got to win this war. Uh, yeah, I think when we're at our best, we emphasize a lot uh, nimbleness and ability to react quickly. Um, I tend to think of planning campaign by campaign and how it is that they build on and enrich each other. So for instance, we did a big campaign to stop the Keystone Pipeline that turned into the, you know, really the great pitched environmental battle of our time. Mm -hmm. It's not yet over, but for four years we've kept them at bay. That sort of morphed into, uh, the keys what one oil executive called the keystoneization of a thousand other projects around the world as people everywhere kind of took up the same idea and and put it to work and so part of our job was to help those guys as best we could with you know wherever they were and the other part for me was to then take that and think huh we've done a good job of playing defense here against bad projects how can we also play offense how can we put these guys on the back foot um, and that's why we started this massive divestment campaign around the planet to really bring it at the fossil fuel industry and make them respond to us for a while. And that succeeded beyond our wildest imaginings um, to the point where, you know, it's now conventional wisdom within the financial community that the fossil fuel industry is yesterday's industry, that there's a real potential problem of stranded assets and a carbon bubble of reserves of coal and gas and oil far greater than we can safely burn. Uh, the ability of that campaign to shape the, um, the understanding, the sort of sense of the world is is uh, surprised even me. And I, I've been, um, um, uh, I've been humbled by how many people in how many places have managed to do that work. Again, the point is that you know this problem is so huge that no organization. I mean, we're 
I think 350.org really remains probably the only global group whose only charge, grassroots group, only charge is fighting climate change. That's a little scary because there's 80 of us, you know. That's very scary. Across <laughs> the whole world. On the other hand, we're really good at hooking up with all the zillions of other people who are in this fight and helping to amplify their voices. And, you know, United, we're able to do all kinds of things. There were 1,200 and some groups that cooperated in that march that, across New York uh, last fall. I mean, that was a different kind of organizing and, and, and beautiful to see. Let's unpack the divestment campaign for a second. Was there something around, you know, was there a moment when you were putting it all together where you said, aha, this is what really works. We've kind of found our product market fit, so to speak. Sure. I mean, the key insight was reading a report from a group called Carbon Tracker Institute, a group of financial analysts in the UK. And they did the work that we should have done years ago of, actually sitting down with all the annual reports and, uh, you know, SEC filings and things from the fossil fuel industry and figuring out how much carbon they had in their reserves. Uh, and when you add it all up, it's about 3,000 gigatons worth of coal and gas and oil that they've already identified uh, and told their shareholders they're going to dig up and sell, right? So 3,000 gigatons. Um, the trouble is that scientists are very clear, and the modeling is really pretty undeniable, that if we want to stay below um, the two-degree temperature target, two-degree Celsius temperature target that the world has set as its red line, and not a very good red line since one degree, which is what we've raised the temperature so far, has melted the Arctic, so we really don't want to find out what two degrees is going to do. But even if we wanted to just try to hold that line, we can only burn... 500 gigatons more carbon. So they have 3,000 that they're planning to burn. The planet can only absorb 500. Um, there's a mismatch there, okay? That mismatch, that five or six times more carbon than we can afford to burn, that was what led me, and, and sort of simultaneously, I was talking a lot with my friend Naomi Klein, a great writer and activist in Canada, uh, led us to think, these are no longer to be considered normal companies. They're not like, you know, companies that just are doing something wrong. You know, it's like, it's not like Apple, but they're in there paying their Chinese workers too little or, you know, something like that. Some flaw we can work on and protest and fix. In this case, it's not that there's a flaw in the business plan. The flaw is the business plan. Okay. So mm -hmm. once we realized that, once we realized that, the fight became, you know, the challenge became how do we, what models do we look for for how to deal with companies like that? And the best example, historical example that we had to draw on was the divestment movement around companies engaged in apartheid in South Africa in the 1980s. Mm. Okay. Uh, had a big role in that victory. When Nelson Mandela got out of prison, one of the first places he went was to California to thank students at the UC system who forced the divestment of stock there, $3 billion. That's right, I remember that. And, and he said, you know, we fought for our own liberation, but we couldn't have done it without the help of people on college campuses across America and so on. So we took that lead and, and built it out. And, and, you know, in three years, it's gone from three years ago, it was, uh, you know, the first, 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 first group to divest was a college called Unity College in rural Maine, 
which had an endowment of about three or four million dollars, I think. And we were so <laughs> grateful, so grateful to them for that. And it was such a piece of leadership. Um, you know, last week the UC system announced that it was divesting from coal and tar sands oil. That's ninety-eight uh, billion dollars worth of endowment. Uh, wow. The California legislature forced Calsters and Calpers to divest from coal. That's uh, you know two-thirds of a trillion dollars right there. Uh, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund earlier this year divested from coal and tar sands. They're the biggest single pool of investment capital on the face of the planet. The Rockefeller family, the Church of England, you know, Oxford and Stanford and uh, the University of Hawaii and the University of Washington and Syracuse and Sydney and Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, you know, uh, the United Church of Christ, the Unitarian Church, uh, the Rockefeller philanthropies, you know, heir to the greatest fossil fuel fortune on earth, everybody moving in the same direction. We've got, you know, probably five minutes left. I, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, obviously there's some big issues here, but what made you devote your, your life to this cause? I mean, you've been working at this, you know, from since a really young age. Was there, was there a seminal moment for you that you said, aha, this is what I'm going to, this is my life's work. This is what I'm going to do. Well, I, you know, I wrote, when I wrote the first book about this, I wasn't really an environment right. yet. Um, I was just a writer and a journalist. And I think uh, my original instinct was just to understand that this was the greatest, biggest story of our time uh, from, you know, and journalists like big stories. Um, and, so that was the beginning, but it didn't take long to understand that it was supposed to be, I guess, objective. I wasn't objective. I knew that I didn't want the world to heat up and blow away, you know. Uh, and as an activist, I've done my best to, to slow that process down. And, you know, we've lost more than we've won. Um, it's very difficult. It's very, it's very hard. Um, to know how much we've lost, but um, we're fighting back now in ways that we couldn't have imagined even a few years ago, and that makes it a little easier. What What gives you hope right now? What are you What are you most excited about for uh, that's That's kind of coming up here. I think what gives me hope is just the sheer number of people in the sheer number of places that are now engaged in this fight. The fossil fuel industry has all the money, but we've got most of the other assets, including the scientific truth, you know. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, um, I would have given them um, overwhelming odds even a few years ago, um, and they may still win. They may be able to delay action long enough past the point where we can really do much about climate change. But our odds get better now every day. And so for people uh, listening or, or reading, what's the best way for them to get involved? How do, how do they lend their voice or their time or, or money? Well, gotta, how, how, how do you recommend? You got to join with other people in this. There's nothing you can do on your own that's going to make a huge hell of a lot of difference. And we don't need to kind of always reinvent the fight over and over again. We've got some pretty good organizations now and groups and movements that are fighting pretty effectively and pretty hard. So, you know, groups like 350.org um, are perfectly good places to start and lend your talents and 
they've got sort of independent chapters all over the place and so on and so forth. You know, people need to be a little entrepreneurial just in like discovering who it is that's engaged in this fight and uh, and helping out and assuming leadership. One of the things that I think is important, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, is, uh, you know, we live in an age when people move in and out of battle sometimes, and that's fine. Nobody can take the kind of constant, endless pace of working on something this big. So people tend to be in for a year working really hard around some effort like divestment, and then they tend to go away for a few months and uh, 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 recoup and regenerate and then come back in. And there's enough of us now that that kind of tag team stuff is possible. We just need more all the time. All right, man. Well, that's great. Thank you uh, so much again. All right, for both this and also for, you know, for fighting, fighting this battle and leading from the front, uh, really, uh, really inspiring to talk to you. And, you know, I know, I know our readers and listeners will, will get excited about it. Uh, any parting words of wisdoms for, for entrepreneurs out there? Is there, you know, thinking None about how to win? None at all. <laughs> all my parting words of wisdom are for you. Just enjoy that baby of yours. Um, uh, thank you, sir. All right. Take care, brother. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon and have you back on. Thank you, Bill. Take care.